yes, you're an investor, but it's their company. The founding team and the team that are building it, it's their company. And so what do they want out of it? Do they want a lifestyle business? Do they want an IPO company? Do they want to sell it? Do they want to do it next year, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? And start getting highly aligned as to what they're thinking. And then, of course, backtest it quite a bit because markets move around and things change. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's John Stewart, former CISO at Cisco and investor at Talons Ventures. And he's here with me at the ranch along with Samir Sait, former CISO at Amazon Whole Foods and now founder at Vulcan ID. I brought these two gentlemen together here to talk with me about how founder and angel investors connect, how they evaluate each other, decide to work together, and what working together actually looks like. It's a great conversation, and I'm learning a lot from both of them on both sides of this story. I think you'll enjoy their perspectives as much as I'm enjoying chatting with them, and I'm very grateful that both of these gentlemen could join me here at the ranch. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. So briefly, John, why don't you tell us a bit about your background in cyber and a bit about your day job? 35 years in cyber, Alan. Started off back in the day of the Morris Jr. Worm and then went over to NASA Ames, went to Cisco for my first stint, left, built a company called Digital Island, went back to Cisco for about 18 years until 2020, and then stepped away from that to become an entrepreneurial investor as well as advisor and some give back work that we're doing with some uh, wildlife poaching problems that we're fighting and illegal wildlife trafficking. That's about the highlight of 35 years in the span of about 15 to 35 seconds. I love it. All right, Samir, how about you? Yeah, I don't think my background is as dynamic as John's, but I started in security maybe 18, 20 years ago, actually in risk management. So I started in the IT GRC audit space and then kind of worked my way up, made myself super uncomfortable by running teams that knew a lot more than I did and taught me quite a bit. Most recently, I left Amazon Whole Foods to start my own company, which you mentioned, Balkan ID. So that's been a lot of fun. All right. So what inspired you to become a founder, Samir? Well, I think the big thing for me was that I saw a problem that I saw again and again and again. And as much as I liked solving it for the company that I was at, I saw this as a broader issue around entitlement sprawl, especially in a cloud-first SaaS and uh, public cloud space. For me, it took, it took a little time validating the problem across my peer group. I think what really inspired me was I saw the risk from multiple fronts, right? When you see entitlement sprawl and it's only being solved with an access review that's essentially a rubber stamping activity, I knew that we could do better, right? And I knew the existing solutions were not scaling. And I think the last inspiration was really finding the right co-founders to go at this with. That was the biggest inspiration of all. All right. Well, that transitions this nicely, John. I want to hear how you and Samir met. We've actually had three meetings in a way of looking at it. The first one was when we were both in operating roles. So over at Whole Foods for him and Cisco for me. The second one was when I was asked to take on a director role in a company he was an investor in. And then the third one was when he was putting Balkan ID together and invited me to be one of the uh, investors in the company. So we've kind of had a whole different set of chapters on both of our careers intersecting each and every time. 
I wonder how common that story is that founders and uh, and investors have known each other throughout the industry before actually cementing the new relationship, right? I wonder how common that is. How about you, Samir? Anything to add to that? Yeah. The first time I met John, he's right about the first interaction. I was still at Amazon Whole Foods and I sent him a, a cold LinkedIn in-mail and he was nice enough to find time to meet with me. John is a super impressive, I mean, he's talked about his background, but his time and his ability to make you feel like the most important person in the conversation, give you advice, not unsolicited. I had to probe it out of John. A lot of what John said to me was, you know, your journey is unique, right? You have had some unique aspects of your journey. And sometimes you just got to take a step back and think about it versus me telling you how I did things at Cisco, which I think is very powerful that we all have our own journeys. By the way, you were the most important person in the world and in that room. So that was pretty easy to say. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right, John. So what made you decide to invest? Obviously a prior relationship, but that's usually not enough to make somebody put money on the table. Like what were the triggering factors for you that said, you know what, I'm going to invest in this guy and invest in this new venture? So I've always said you bet on people, you don't bet on tech. And, you know, Samir is just an impressive person. So if you see his passion come out during today, it wouldn't be at all surprising. He was taking on what is still in way too complicated space between combination of items that he's seen operationally that just needed fixing. And he said, you know, instead of waiting for somebody else to fix it, I'm going to go aim to do that myself. Brought a team around him. He's very self-aware. And these things matter where... He knows what he knows. He knows what he doesn't know. He's very, very comfortable bringing in people that complement his skills that make a stronger team around him. And then in the end, that's why I say you sort of bet on people, not on tech. You know it when you talk to him that he's sincere about wanting to do the right thing generally. He's very passionate and very competitive and wants to win and get it done. He knows how to complement himself in terms of making the strongest team, which is candidly the only way anybody gets through any of this. Yep. Surround yourself with people who are better at what they do than you are yourself, right? For right. sure. So Samir, how did you go about picking your investors, right? I mean, obviously John's not your only one and you've got your own criteria for what you chose. How did you go about selecting your investor? How did you settle on John and, and how did you settle on the others? Yeah. I mean, something that I learned pretty early on was that the largest check doesn't always provide the most amount of value day one. And so I was very passionate about getting angels versus just taking money from large VCs as a name brand. One, because I think that a lot of the angels that I went to are friends of yours, mine, Alan, as part of our many CISO network groups. The second is, I think, finding people that actually have a shared vision to solve problems in cybersecurity. And they don't have to be CISOs, by the way. It just so happened that I know a number of them like you do. And then I think my co-founders, having had a successful exit in the past, he had a number of tech, aka product CTO type folks that found this idea to be compelling and saw that as a problem as well. As you know, a lot of security problems impact much more than just a CISO organization. And sure. so they really bought in and we got a variety of very, uh, very strong angels to support us early on. I like that. So... You meet some folks, you've, you've got your connections, it's largely industry connections, you find people that are passionate about solving the problem. Now, what about your criteria? You've sort of got a variety of angel investors, and I'm assuming you sort of brokered unique deals with each one, like there's not just a generic sign here and invest this way according to these terms. I'm assuming you have to get into negotiations with every investor, and you've probably got sort of unique deals on the table, so to speak, for each one. 
Actually, no, we were pretty uh, democratic about it. And we had the same terms, same kind of terms across the board. I'd say that the amount invested was different, obviously, across different people. Their comfort level is different. But no, we kept it very democratic and very straightforward. I like that. I didn't know you could pull that off. I kind of assumed every investor would want to come in and wrangle their own sort of deal. (laughs) Oh, we do. uh, It doesn't mean he's going to let us. It just means we want to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, right, right. Fantastic. Fantastic answer. So Samir holding his line there. I feel the need real quick to do a quick disclaimer too. I should mention just full and total transparency. John is also an investor in my day job. And Samir and I have had conversations about me investing in his organization. Haven't done it yet. I'm having conversations with my wife. <laughs> but uh, it's entirely possible I end up investing in Samir's organization as well. So just total transparency and full disclaimer there. So, John, back over to you. I know that you invest in a lot of startups, right? Not just my day job, not just Samir, but you've got a lot of activities going on. How about you? The deal being unique from your perspective, I'm assuming every one of these ends up being a whole different conversation. You've maybe got different degrees of involvement and engagement, slightly different terms, slightly different equity. Like, what does that landscape look like for you? Well, to me, the notion of how much I invest, and by the way, the Talents Ventures itself is really my money. It's not somebody else's. I didn't create a fund. I didn't do fundraising outside of what I'd put together for myself and my family and the like. And, And so as a result, the risks that I'm taking are for my own benefit or cost, depending on how it goes. So net net of it is, is that the side effect of that is how much money I invest depends and directly relates to what kind of contributions I actively will want to make. And then, of course, in the what I would call the passively or just contributory sense, it's consistent. So here's how it plays out. Every company I align to, their brand and my brand have now become linked. And I believe that integrity on that kind of level is an insanely powerful force. And it's the one thing I want to make sure is very, very clear that I own and I want to maintain because it's something I built for so long. And I want the company to be able to do the same and we both get the benefit as a result. So if the two of us get together, we both succeed in that respect. But past that, it's around very specific domains, what kind of areas of interest that I believe need to be solved. Entitlement sprawl, for example, is a simple example and witness what Samir is aiming to do. But that's beyond that. And I want to be able to contribute actively in some way, shape, or form. But as the money goes up, in other words, the size of investment goes up, then I'm going to take more of a controlling position into it, very oftentimes sitting on the board of directors of the company. And that's got to match, by the way, as we all know, because team dynamics are super important, especially to founders. You can't have someone that's very, very divergently different thinking than in a negative way to a founder because they need the clarity all the time and they need the push and the input and the insight and the discussion and the questions. So that's kind of how it ranges. And finally, and certainly not to underestimate this, I always say being an independent board member, even if I'm an investor of my own money, I want to be the best friend and the strongest critic to help a founder be successful. So I'll be a great friend, but don't get me wrong, I'm going to push. And it's not because I think they're wrong or they're not. It's just that's what founders need. They need a safe place to be able to be pushed back and forth where they're not dealing with institutional investors and the like. So it ranges quite a bit, but that's how it's yielded. And it's a model that I've been building for probably the better part of 15 years. I love it. So it's kind of a combination of investor, advisor, foil, if you will. Exactly. Sounds like a solid plan. So Samir, how about you? Do you have other relationships with other investors? You know, sort of the inverse of that whole conversation John just shared with us. Yeah, I've done some angel investments as well. I think it's fair to say what John said is accurate. I don't know if I take as much of a controlling share or I don't push as hard. I'm more of a sounding board, more of a 
product market fit kind of person. I like to talk along those lines. I tend to get pretty tactical on the discussion so I can help in that front. I think I do a fair bit of research on my own around what are the competitive players in the space? What's the USP for this product or the minimum sellable product, if you will? So yeah, I take a little different approach, but then my checks are probably smaller and I have a focus on my own startup, right? Right. So how about your startup? How about other investors? Do you have other investors that are advisors, that are board members? Like, how about those relationships? Yeah. And so we were very uh, careful about kind of adding on the advisors. So we talked about investors already. I think the advisor side has been mostly on the product management, product marketing, some very well-connected individuals with ideal customers that we need to kind of partner with early on to kick the tires with what we've built. So we have a few advisors just on that front, but haven't really scaled the advisory side yet till we get that initial set of kind of early adopters. I like that. So design partners almost is the right term there. Yes. Hey everyone, it's me, Simone Biles. You might be wondering why you're hearing my voice on a cybersecurity podcast ad. Well, it's because I'm partnering with Axonius. Whether you're a gymnast like me or an IT or security pro, Complexity is inevitable, and I've learned that the key to success is focusing on what you can control. Go check out my video at axonius.com slash Simone. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash S-I-M-O-N-E. All right. So, John, how about advice for investors? Like, Others that want to follow in your footsteps here and want to invest in startups. What's your go-to rules? What's your high-level advice? How do you well, steer them towards success? I can certainly use any of the mistakes I've made just as much as any of the successes I've made. But, well, share some of those um, then. <laughs> well, again, I hate to repeat something too many times, but I don't think it's too many times yet. You bet on the people, not the tech. It's super easy to get in love with tech and then just go, wow, that's cool things to slice bread. Of course, it's so obvious. But truth be known is the people behind it are the ones you're going to be betting on the entire time. So look deep. And by the way, smartest people in the room doesn't necessarily always equal guaranteed success. A sense of humility with confidence is a very, very important aspect about this. Gosh knows founders need to be resilient. On a Monday, it's going to be a great day. On a Tuesday, they're going to be feeling like the world's coming to an end. And by Friday, they'll have gone up and down at least twice more just because that's the nature of the beast. And so as an investor, I follow out and look for all of those things. I look how optionality is how... CEOs think? How many chances do they have? What directions could they go? Are they strategically capable of looking beyond today's decision and thinking about what might happen in the future? Simple example would be the economy. We all know what that feels like right now. Six months ago, I was talking to investors about what happens in a down economy, not because I had any prescient need to know that there was a down economy in our future. It's just you have to plan for both ways. As an investor, I think that the other one to keep in mind is you always have to essentially say, hey, look, I am capable of losing this money, number one. Number two, I am capable of getting this money at an even out, so nothing gained, nothing lost, and that would still be considered a win. And then for me, and I'm highly competitive, then you want the win column to go up and to the right. And this begets an important aspect about investing. Yes, you're an investor, but it's their company. The founding team and the team that are building it, it's their company. And so what do they want out of it? Do they want a lifestyle business? Do they want an IPO company? Do they want to sell it? Do they want to do it next year, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? And start getting highly aligned as to what they're thinking. And then, of course, backtest it quite a bit because markets move around and things change. 
And then the end analysis, I guess what I'm simply suggesting is there's a lot of homework to do. Start slow, start small, start getting confidence, find a couple of mistakes. I'll give you those now. Uh, and then, uh, and then be able to say, okay, now I'm starting to get the hang of this thing and it's not a big surprise. So mistakes that I've made. One mistake would include the information you're being told, especially if you know people that are working in the company is dead accurate don't trust that that's true. It's not that anyone's trying to mislead you. It's just the fact that once you actually dig deeper in a couple, three layers, I've made mistakes of going too quickly, signing on and finding out that the information I had was either halfway or completely wrong. Again, no one's trying to do anything wrong. It's just they're a little too close to it and sometimes don't see it. So I shortcut my diligence at times and have. I am aiming never to do that again. The astonishing side effects of that are huge and wide and quite varietally based. And the second thing is make sure that the founding team knows who's going to take over if somebody has to step away for any number of life reasons. So what's going to happen if Samir has to step away for a family situation? Knock on wood, nothing happens, but life is life. And get that sort of resilience question going on in the business. I've made that mistake too, which all of a sudden yielded me getting very, very deeply involved in a company that I didn't expect. So those are just two examples of things I've also learned from pain. But hopefully the prior ideas and prior input that I was giving you gives you the sense of the way that I've walked through. And I think it's good to walk through to get and be a good investor. All right. Samir. We got to hear this from the founder side now. Tell us your advice and tell us your mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's my first time starting a company, so I haven't made any mistakes yet. And knock on wood, <laughs> I don't you know make of, any right? mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> I think as an early stage founder, it's very easy to get caught up in the hype and marketing buzz. You know, we all just came back from RSA. There's fancy events, there's a lot of business wire, press releases, et cetera. And as an early stage, first time entrepreneur, a part of me would get nervous. Oh my God, look what's happening out there. Look what everyone's building. Oh, we're so slow. I think taking a step back and saying, well, we are on our journey, right? We have supporters, we have backers. We have a real problem we're solving. And the fact that other people want to solve the same problem is validation that it's a real problem. That's what. There's a positive spin to all of this hype and marketing stuff that we see out there. The second thing I'd say for an early stage founder is to really focus on the customer and work backwards. What do we mean by working backwards? It's the customer has a problem. How do you work backwards from that problem to figure out the steps it takes to solve that problem without just going off into a corner and saying, I'm going to build a really cool solution for the customer. And the problem with not working backwards or not really kind of listening to the minutia of what they're talking about is you might miss the forest for the trees. It's happened to many a company that have great tech. So it took us a little bit of time, but we've been very fortunate to find those evangelist early adopters that you mentioned, Alan, that can kind of speak for a larger swath of customers and that have the interest and the passion to delve deep into the problem with you to a level of minutia that most people want. And so if you can find those early adopters, those evangelist customers, if you will, that are willing to take a chance with an early stage company, take it and run. I like that. And you, you end up getting them exactly what they need, right? But I guess there's that longer term risk of now you've tailored a product that's great for company A and company A only, right. right? You have to keep that roadmap going with other ideas as well. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit here. And let me ask both of you, we'll start with John. How would you recommend an investor go about finding and starting the dialogues with potential investees, with potential founders? Like not what criteria are you looking for, but how would you even kick that process off? So in other words, if you're trying to figure out where to invest money, how do you find like companies that are looking yeah. for it? Yeah. It sort of depends on where you're starting the journey. But I would say this, there are some 
pretty interesting communities. For example, if you come as a CISO, there's the Bay Area CISO Forum. There's other investment groups that are doing it that you could join in and start to see portfolio reviews and you could start to see, hey, multiple companies that are going across. I would always take and look at, hey, I just launched a stealth startup. You see that on LinkedIn, I guarantee they're raising money somewhere. And if you know that person even better, you can always enjoy yourself and uh, hang out with Alan um, and go, Alan, who are you talking to? What companies are you working on? Who are your friend group? Are any of them raising money? Have you made any investments? Could I talk to you about whatever investments you're making? You can also find people oftentimes that are in venture capital teams that too often or not, they may be a little bit later stage, but they'll know the deal flow of companies coming in that are starting to raise earlier money, seed range, that kind of thing. Or if you really want to make a big bet, bet on yourself and start your own company. <laughs> there you go. All right, that's my next move. I'm going to start Allen Inc. We're going to solve all the cyber problems, all of them, with zero what? false positives, by the way. Wait, that's our is, it a zero, is it a zero trust architecture, I hope? Zero trust, ML, AI, <laughs> AI. blockchain, and zero Perfect. false positives in its military grade. <laughs> Phenomenal. And make sure it's international, supports multiple languages, has resiliency, is directly related to cyber insurance, and has a full underwriting authority in order to make sure that it could work in space for the next generation customer. Well, of course. If you're not targeting okay. space, you're not forward-looking enough, yeah. I don't think. Exactly. <laughs> so, Samir, how about you? How about your advice for finding those investors in the first place, right? Is it strictly the buddy network, or did you have other tools at your disposal? I think John covered it all. It's the network of fellow CISOs and security professionals, it's the VC, absolutely some of the early stage VCs will bring you in if you're interested in investing. They love it because you could potentially help them think about the customer <laughs> early on. And I think the other ones are the Slack channels that you and I are part of, Alan. So there's not a whole lot more than that, I don't think, that you can uh, target. Okay. Largely the network is what I heard from both of y'all. Although John had some clever ones with uh, farming the LinkedIn uh, stealth modes. Like that was a good tip. If you want unsolicited interest, almost at a high volume, high speed post on LinkedIn, seeking to invest in startups, trust me, you'll get plenty <laughs> of people that are dropping you a note. <laughs> I get enough LinkedIn traffic today without a post like that. I can't even imagine. Okay. We're going to switch gears here completely. We're going to ask a question that we've been asking every guest on the show. And actually, let's see here. Should I ask the old question? Or the new? I'm going to ask the old question because I haven't asked this one of you yet, John. What is something you have learned outside of cybersecurity that has helped you in cybersecurity? Being a parent has actually helped me quite a bit. So different phases of parenting, right? You've got essentially full control while a child is very young and you're essentially just teaching them the very basics. But for the most part, you're in high protect mode and they haven't quite formulated their own thinking on things. Then there's this chapter where they don't, know everything, but they're convinced they know everything. And so you've got a very different role as a parent. And then pretty soon, you're no longer dealing with an 18-year-old or under. It's a person going off into the world, and you're only there to listen and coach. And you have really very little directed control over anything. Believe it or not, startups have a certain flavor to that almost at any given point, And they may be in different modes. But it's taught me a lot of humility. It's taught me how to listen better. Certainly being a parent, it's taught me how to be emotionally connected to something just as much as intellectually connected to something. And I'm the first to tell you, I, I feel lucky as many parents do. But I think being a parent of two great kids that are now not kids, they're off in that third chapter. I had the fortune of making a lot of mistakes before I made mistakes with the livelihoods of companies. So in some respects, 
I learned on the fly being a parent how to take some of those learnings. And of course, watching my parents in retrospective, I went through my journey. I learned a lot of lessons along the way too. So there's the outside realm. That's the lessons I've learned. And there's certainly the ones I'm still trying to put into practice and refining every single day. Fantastic answer. All right, Samir, you have answered that question before the last time you were on the show. So I have a new one for you. You are given a magic wand and you are told you can change any one thing about the entire cybersecurity space. What's the one thing you want to change? (laughs) That's a good one. One thing I would change. Well, I think the big thing for me has always been security is not just a CISO's job. And if there's one thing I could get across to our community as leaders, business leaders, is making security a mandate for everybody, almost like it's part of my, what's the word? My yearly plan or my my annual bonus or my annual review, right? As long as everybody's bought into that kind of vision around security, then it won't just fall on one person and then be a losing cause for the most part. I like that. Get some more investment, get some more accountability towards security. All right, well, gentlemen, I'll start with you, John. Any last thoughts, points on this topic, this conversation we've had? Anything you want to add? Watch Balkan ID. It's going to be fun to watch Samir build his company and be successful in the market. So keep an eye on him. When he starts to suggest that, hey, we're getting ready to raise funding again, you'll know who to talk to because he's now well-known as a result of being on your podcast. And Alan, you're doing a, a great thing. And that's not to be self-aggrandizing because we're on it, but because you've been a high proponent, certainly a very big advocate, had a certain measure of humility and humor all the way along the way, but you've helped educate and bring to light topics that I think are very relevant. And I've been a subscriber for quite a while. So I've long before we had a chance to really, really get a chance to know each other. So please keep this up. I think it's a great venue by which to listen. I sure appreciate that. I'm trying my best to get luminaries in the industry and then I can sit back and let them shine and then I get all the credit. (laughs) Samir, how about you? Any final thoughts? Yeah, I'm just waiting for your check in the mail. So I look forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. No pressure. No, it's, no pressure. No pressure. As always, it's been great to be on your show. I was there a few months ago and had a blast. So thank you again for the opportunity. All right. I appreciate y'all gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs> <laughs>